growing in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11 to 12. I've titled the message this morning, Pilgrims in a Hostile Land. It covers uh, a wealth of uh, different things and and information, but uh, you'll see what I'm saying when you uh, when we read this these few verses here first peter chapter 2 verse 11 uh, dearly beloved i beseech you as pilgrim as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conversation honest among the gentiles that whereas they speak against you as evildoers they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify god in the day of visitation Let's, uh, let's bring these things to the Lord. Let's commit this time to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your loving kindness and this word which you have delivered to us, untainted and pure, as it was first written. Father, we pray that as we look and we listen, Father, and as you use me to deliver this message this morning, Father, that uh, I'd be hidden behind the cross and our hearts would be fully open to this truth, Lord, that we would love the light as you are in the light and we would uh, seek to learn more of you, to grow more like you, that we might glorify you in every part of our lives. We thank you once again for your goodness. We thank you for the salvation which has brought us together uh, in, in fellowship, one with another, because we have now fellowship with you. And we pray that you bless us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The late 1940s, 50s and 60s saw a a wave of immigration into Australia. Many of us are here because of something called the Second World War. The Second World War decimated much of uh, Europe and there wasn't much left and there was a lot of rebuilding that had to be done. And in the late uh, 1940s, many migrants came to Australia seeking a better life because uh, Europe had a lot of rebuilding to do, which would take quite a substantial amount of time. And during that time, the Australian government actually sent out a call to everyone saying that we wanted to increase our population over here, that we had some serious infrastructure that we wanted to build and things that we wanted to do. Uh, So we, we, we sent out a general call that we wanted to increase Australia's population. And we promised, we made a number of promises to them, that, um, that they'd have a better life here, that there was plenty of space to grow and that uh, there'd be plenty of work for people who wanted to start a, uh, a new life and who wanted to actually establish a family and a new uh, a home here. So one of those uh, schemes was the Snowy Mountain Scheme over here in Australia. Uh, it started around 1949, lasted 25 years. And as a result of that one scheme, just to give you an idea, 100,000 people immigrated to Australia to work on that one project. 100,000 people. And they came from about 30 different countries. And when it was complete, it established what it it was supposed to do. Uh, It created dams, created a whole infrastructure uh, around that area. Um, But for many migrants that came over to Australia, uh, life was pretty hard. I mean, if you're working on that particular uh, project over there, uh, oftentimes that you weren't necessarily with your family. You would come over here, and that was a stepping stone um, to try and establish a new life over here. And for many migrants who came over, life was pretty hard 
They were away from their families. Mostly it was the men who had come over here to see if they could get a footing and, and just make a, make a new start. They were away from their families. They didn't understand uh, the language, so they were trying to, to get a handle on what was going on. They, there was a different culture, which they had to get used to. They were often seen with suspicion from the Australians that were, that were native here. I won't say native, but uh, they'd been here for a, a, a longer period of time. Um, and while they were trying to save uh, and work and, uh, and try to save to, to buy their own block of land so they could build their own home, they were in many cases trying to, or sending money back uh, to their families, to support their families, which were overseas, to feed them until, and save enough, until they could actually call them over to this country as well. That was true for my great-grandparents, my grandparents, and my parents. That, those three generations of mine actually all came over here, my great-grandfather being the first. He ended up in the cane, working the cane fields, the sugar cane, in Queensland. And when he started to, uh, uh, started to work up there, he told my grandfather, oh, there is plenty of work over here if you want it. And if you want to establish a good life over here, you can do it. So my grandfather came over here. And for a number of years, they worked together trying to build up enough to call the rest of the family over. So it was a difficult time being away from your family for that long. And it was a difficult time generally. Later on, they saved enough uh, and they bought uh, a house in Flemington. And they settled over in that area over there. And we have a ton of stories. I mean, if I, if I wrote down all the stories about what happened to them during this time, some of them were, were difficult, but many of them were just, when you look back at them, they were just so funny. I mean, you had communication issues and you had all diff different types of things that, I mean, they didn't know some of the foods that were, that, you know, Vegemite, when they, um, <laughs> how, do they how do you describe Vegemite to, uh, to an Italian? Um, Yes, right, yeah. And then um, yeah, there was a few stories where you just... The, the, the word, they were trying to say the words, but they just couldn't quite get it across. There was a particular story of Miriam's uncle, I think it was, who, who went into a, a, a grocery store or whatever it was, looking for a stamp, because he wanted to send a letter to his family, and he asked for one stamp, please. And the guy goes, two o'clock. <laughs> one stamp, please. Uh, two o'clock, thank you very much. And he walked out of the actual thing without ever getting his stamp. The guy thought he was asking, what's the time, please? <laughs> and if you're trying to buy a dozen eggs, and you don't know how to say the word eggs, there's only one thing left for you to do, and that's actually act out the chicken. <laughs> you know that, don't you? Anyway, there are plenty of stories along those lines. But you know something? Life would have been uh, a lot easier and less challenging if there wasn't a breakdown in communication. And communication makes life so much uh, easier and makes life so much more enjoyable. And if you understood each other's cultures, um, it would have been better too. Anyway, it took them time to settle in. It took them time to understand each other. And it went both ways as well. Um, either way, though, they chose to leave their old country. They left. They made that decision and they left their old way of life, left all their belongings, families, um, way of life, the things they were used to, and they said, we're going to leave all that and we're going to start a whole new life in this country over here. And they, they sought to make the best of it, and in most cases they did. And they did very well. 
In essence, uh, this is not too different from the Christian's life. We've been called to a new place. We've been called to a different country. And heaven decided 2,000 years ago to send the call out and say, we want, to, we want to increase our population. And we're going to do it through this particular means. And it was by Jesus dying on the cross. And it said, if you accept this particular means, we want you up here. And some answered that call, realising that this world is headed for a fall. This world is headed for judgement in the end. And to be honest with you, we realised that our own lives and, and the, thing that, the things that we held on to so firmly over here were really nothing much to speak about. It was so much better up there. Heaven's shores look so much more attractive than the, the most beautiful ocean views over here. So we desired when God advertised his home up there for us, we looked at it and we said, well, I lied like that. Thank you very much. And we found that Jesus had already paid for our passport. He'd organised the passport. He'd actually organised a permanent residency. You know how difficult it is to actually get permanent residency in Australia? And we have Marco and Marlon who love to stay, who would absolutely love to stay here, but they're coming to the end of their working visa. They've been here for a couple of years. And then to, to get residency in Australia is a very, very difficult job. We are blessed because Jesus not only organised our passport to get to heaven, he paid for the ticket for us to get there. He... He organised permanent residency for us simply by saying, these guys are with me, which is, I think, the most wonderful thing. If, if He's the king of heaven. And when the king of heaven says, these people are with me, don't worry about anything. Um, you can't say no, can you? Well, they can't say no. Um, and he organised not just that, but he also organised a house for us too. So we don't have to struggle to buy a home up there. We don't have to go to a, like a foreign country. He paid for everything, including the house. Now, that's a good deal if ever I saw one. And if you've accepted that offer this morning, uh, God bless you. You have a lot to look forward to. If you haven't, don't wait. Because there is no better offer in the universe that's going to come your way. Um, that is the best that you will ever, ever have. And if you have that, you have everything. Um, so we are in the enviable position that one day we'll be travelling home with our Saviour. Isn't that a beautiful thought? He's going to come one day and he's going to say, time to go home. And it could happen when we pass away. The Bible simply tells us that to be absent from the body, which means when we die, we separate ourselves from the body. It says, but if you're absent from the body, the Bible says you are present with the Lord. So either when we pass away or when we're raptured, um, there is one thing that's happening if you've accepted that invitation, and that is we're going to be home with our Saviour. And either way, what we've decided to do is relinquish our citizenship of this world. You can't have both. We've said to ourselves and we've said to the Lord, um, we're happy to take that citizenship in heaven and we're happy to drop this one over here. So you may ask yourself this question. 
we've accepted the citizenship over there. Um, we've had everything organised for us. What are we still doing here? Now, God could have taken us in a second, couldn't he? You know, as soon as, and some of us, I know, have thought this, oh, wouldn't it have been nice if, if God had simply taken me as soon as I said yes, all right? Because <laughs> sometimes life is not that easy. For one thing, the reason we're still here is that heaven has no problem with communication or culture. You realise that, don't you? Every being in heaven speaks perfect language one to another. Every being is perfectly suited to the culture that is in heaven. There are no differences in standards. There is no racism in heaven. There are no arguments over politics, believe it or not. No, heaven is what we would describe as perfect, absolute unity. And everything and everyone understands each other and is in perfect empathy and relationship with one another. So unlike immigrants who came from Italy and European countries and from foreign lands who had to then come to this country and try to learn to adapt while they were here and had to learn a new language and had to adapt to an alien culture, guess what we're doing? We're learning heaven's language now. That's what God's doing with us. We're learning heaven's culture, its customs, now. God is preparing us in every possible way to actually be prepared when we step onto those shores. The Spirit is teaching us through the Word of God what we need to know. And guess what? He's making us practice while we're here. And sometimes the practice is not that easy. <laughs> you know, when you... I mean, I've watched Alicia practice her piano and it's, sometimes it's actually over and over and over again. And, and for those of you who've mastered some sort of instrument or some sort of language or whatever, you understand it can be a bit of a drudgery sometimes. But sometimes uh, practising to be a Christian here on this, uh, in this world cannot just be, it can be worse than a drudgery. It can be a great difficulty because we have a, uh, uh, an enemy who doesn't want us mastering any of the languages that, uh, that we are learning and the customs that we are learning of heaven, and he would try to stop us every opportunity that he can. So we're learning, we're practising, we're growing, because one day, when we step onto the shores of heaven, we're going to be ready. We're going to speak that language. God has already, the Bible said, made us fit for heaven. In other words, he's made us new creatures, and I think I've mentioned this, well, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this last time, but I've mentioned it to someone previously, but it's almost like he's made us fit to breathe the air of heaven, where we didn't have the lungs to do it before. So I'm looking forward to the day when I find myself in heaven with an amazing view in front of me, and I breathe those first, first breaths of that air. Looking forward to that day. But guess what else we're doing over here? The Bible says we are the foreign affairs office of this world, of, of heaven, the foreign affairs office. We are the people who man heaven's embassies. We are here on earth to encourage more people to accept the offer that God has made from heaven. That's our job, to let people know that this offer is still open, but one day it's going to close. And we're here as examples of what the kingdom of heaven is like. We're here as examples to them and say, look at what's happened to me. 
This is what it means to be a child of God. This is what it means once you've accepted that citizenship of heaven, what it can do for you. We're examples of heaven's kingdom. And even though they may not understand the light, may not even like the light, God has called us to be the light. Because he's planted that light within us. We must also be aware that we do not belong here anymore. You can't have dual citizenship. Because if you're a citizen of this world, the Bible simply says that you will come under the judgment of God. We no longer belong here. And that the government here, the one who's in power at the moment, hates what we do and who we are. We are essentially at war with the God of this world. We are at war. Much like if you were spending your time in North Korea trying to smuggle out people. Kim Jong-un would not be very happy with you if you were telling everyone what a terrible dictator he actually was and that there was a better way of life somewhere else. You probably wouldn't last too long if you were doing it publicly like we do in this world. We're basically telling everyone the God of this world does not love you. He doesn't want you. He wants to kill you. And if you persist in this particular way, you will eventually suffer the consequence of an eternity in hell, away from the living God. The God of this world does not like that. So we are a threat to him. So today's sermon is about reminding ourselves about what it means to be such a person. What it means to have this responsibility. So Peter tells us in verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Isn't it beautiful to be called dearly beloved? Dearly beloved. Not just beloved, dearly beloved. It means wonderful to be beloved. But understand that you are a child of God if you have accepted Jesus, received him as your Lord and your Saviour. We are indeed dearly beloved and we should never, ever forget it. And Jesus' love didn't finish at the cross. It was the, the most dramatic example of what love is. But the love of Christ continues today. If anything, the cross showed us what he is like consistently because Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. If that's the love that he showed then, that's the love that he continues to have for us today. So always remember, when you are in doubt about whether God loves you or not, when you struggle with something in your life and you think to yourself, why is God letting me go through this? Never doubt the love that he has for you. Because if you are a child of his, he will never, ever forsake you nor leave you. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. There is no one who can separate you from the love of Christ, even you. But then Peter tells us that we are strangers and pilgrims. In what way are we strangers? Well, I know some of you are a little bit stranger than others. Um, but sh <coughs> what we should be seeing over here is that we are strangers as in we are foreigners and aliens in this land. Even though we were born in this place, we no longer belong here. This is actually a foreign land to us now. Foreign in every possible way. In other words, Peter says you are not native. We don't naturally fit here any longer. 
By definition, you and I are people who are foreigners, but also not recognised by the people that live here any longer. They no longer see us the same because we are not the same. So we're not recognised as being together with them any longer. They don't recognise it. And we shouldn't recognise it either. So in what way are we pilgrims? Well, we're pilgrims because we're foreign residents. Yeah. So Marco and Marlon, sorry to say, are foreign residents. Maybe one day they'll be permanent residents. But at the moment, they're foreign residents. They have their um, citizenship in another country. They're here with us. We love them being here with us. But they're going to return home fairly soon because they don't have citizenship here just yet. The Bible says that we are foreigners in this country and foreigners in this world. We are in a country that's not our own anymore and we belong in a different country. So why is Peter telling us this? Because we must constantly remind ourselves that we are no longer part of this world, but that we have essentially renounced our citizenship and the devil hates it. And one day we're going home to our country. So how you see yourself is critical to how you will behave. Do you understand that? Because if you see yourself as a continuing citizen in this world, if you can continue to see yourself as just like anyone else out there, you will behave just like anyone else out there. And you will struggle with this thing we call the Christian life. Because if I see myself like everyone else in the world, and I'm trying to uphold a certain number of principles, you may find yourself trying to live out a religion, rather than actually living out who you are. Who you are is essential to the way you will behave. If you see yourself in a certain way, you will naturally begin to behave a certain way. But if you see yourself another way, you're going to eventually behave that way as well. The way you see yourself generally determines how you will live. The fruit of your life will be determined by your perception of yourself. Now, question is, where do you get your perception of yourself? Where do you find that, that reality of what is reality for you? The Bible says that the word of God is the place we should look at. So if you have any doubt about who am I, what am I, the first place you have to look in is the word of God. Because the word of God is the manual for getting into heaven and becoming a citizen. It tells you how to do it and it tells you who you are, who God is and what God has done to help us become those citizens. So always, always, if your experience doesn't seem to match up with the Word of God, which one are you going to pick? The Word of God every, every time. Don't take your experience because your experience is in this world. The flesh will always try to deceive you. The devil will always try to deceive you. The world will always try to entice you. And the reality is that what God says about me is what the truth is. What the world says about me is one big lying deception. And we need to be very, very careful of it. Because even our own flesh is deceptive. The Bible tells us very clearly that the heart is deceptive above all things. And desperately wicked. We still live in a, a schizophrenic state. Sorry. We have been made citizens of heaven, but we drag around the flesh that still wants to be attached to the world. And it's, it's pulling us in this direction 
and, but our hearts and our new natures are, are drawn to heaven. So we need to be very careful about who we're listening to because in many cases, if what you're listening to doesn't match up to the word of God, I can guarantee you who you're listening to. It's the flesh or the devil. So we need to be careful about that. So how you see yourself is critical to how you will behave. Because Peter tells us, if you go back a few verses in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. If we see, simply see ourselves as the same people that we were before we got saved, then we've missed an incredibly important point. We are not the same as before. The devil will tell you that you're the same as before. The devil will tell you that there's nothing different now about you. But we are all together, the Bible says, new creatures. A new creation in God, which has been created and made fit for heaven. That's who we are. We are fit for heaven. From God's eternal perspective, we've already been perfectly suited for heaven's culture, its air, its language. In God's eternal perspective, that's already happened. We may look at it from a temporary point of view that oh, I haven't reached there quite yet and I've still got a lot of work to do. Yes, it's okay. But in God's eyes, the Bible says, we're already seated with Christ. Already. In God's eyes, it's a done deal. We've already been accepted in the beloved. We've been washed and cleansed of all of our sins. The Bible says we have been sanctified and set apart from everyone else in this world. The Bible says we are justified. And just as God is true in every possible way, the Bible says we shall be glorified. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. You see, when God starts something, he always finishes it. And you are something that he started. If you've put your faith in Christ. And he will finish it. You know, if you're an Australian citizen, it may be difficult and dangerous to live in certain countries. If you've been on, uh, on you know, that, that website that the government's got that tells you about, you know, if you're going overseas, it warns you about all the different things and, you know, this country's having this problem and that. That's a very good, it's a very interesting uh, website to actually visit. I would encourage you to do it if you're planning on going to uh, an exotic country, let's put it that way, okay? Um, but this country, this world is dangerous to the Christian. We need to be on our toes all the time. We live in a secular society, saturated by the flesh, absolutely saturated by sin and the flesh, while it's being watched over by principalities and powers who seek to maintain and control that dominion. These principalities and powers are the devil and his angels who guard their trophies and dominions with all diligence. And we are 
a little thorn in the side for him. By our very nature, we are a threat to him. We are a threat. We are the ones for whom the Lord works and reaches people to save them from darkness that they are in. We are dangerous. Unless we've gone to sleep. Unless we've become complacent. Unless the enemy has fooled us into thinking that we're not different than anyone else. Unless he's managed to connive and to, and to scheme and to make us believe that we're not important. Or he can keep us focused so much on our little problems that we chase our tail the whole time not seeing who we really are and what he has planned for us. The devil will continually dangle the enticements of this world in front of our eyes, hoping to distract us from the task that's at hand. I'll tell you one thing that I've learned as a pastor, is that we need to keep our spiritual eyes and ears open. And why? Because the Spirit of God continues to move and to work. Has not stopped. Jesus continues to work today. And we need to be attentive to his calling. Guess who he uses to reach the lost? He uses us. If we're asleep in a corner, he's not going to be using you. We need to be attentive to his calling. Our lives should be in a state of constant connection with God. Much like these things that we carry around. And with every bing, with every noise that comes up, we immediately look at it and say, oh, what's it saying now? Who's talking to me? We need to be that attentive with God. We need to be that focused. As focused as we are on a mobile phone, we need to be attentive to God. Because guess what? He's got a method of communicating with us. And it's by the Spirit of God which has connected itself with our spirit. It communicates with us. If we are asleep in a corner, we don't realise that heaven is communicating with us, warning us, telling us to go here, telling us to speak certain words, then we're going to miss all the things that God has prepared for us. Don't be fooled. God has preordained, the Bible says, works that we should walk in them. He has preordained those. So he knew the day you were going to be saved. He knew how you were going to be saved, who was going to come and speak to you. He knows exactly every weakness, every strength that you have. And he has certain works preordained that you should walk in them. Only so he gets all the glory. But when he calls you and says, I want you to go and do this. I want you to speak to that person over there. If you're not attentive, if you're so caught up with your own life and with the things of this world, you will not listen to what he has for you. And that's going to be something you just pass by and forget. Don't be fooled by the lie that it doesn't matter what you do now. As long as you don't commit the big sins. That's what some denominations will tell you. That there are big sins and there are little sins. That's not true. We have been called to work the works of God now. Now. In this lifetime. And we will be judged by the things that we do in these bodies. Yes, we'll be judged. Don't let anyone ever tell you that because you're a Christian you'll never be judged. You will be judged. You'll be judged by what you've done with the time that God's given you here. Every one of us will be judged. 
And the Bible says that God has already all these things planned ahead of us so that we might rejoice the day we stand before his throne and say, look, Lord, look what I did. And God's going to say, yeah, I planned them all for you. And it was good to see that you walked in every one of them. But there is going to be so many people who go there and God's going to say, what about all those things I planned for you? And you're going to say, God, I was just sorry. I was just too busy. You know, I was too busy focused on things of this world. I was running around chasing my own tail. You know, I had a career to build, Lord. I had a house to build. Father, I had, I had, I had to you know, look after this and look after that. And tell me something. How much are all the things that we worry about here in this world really going to matter when you have the rest of eternity? Think of it. Are all the things we concern ourselves with when we are citizens of heaven already, are they really going to make that much of a difference over there? They're going to mean very, very little. Don't be fooled. We'll be judged and we'll receive what we have done in this life. Not every home in heaven is the same home. Not every position in heaven is the same position. Now, we are living in a, a proving ground at the moment. We are in preparation. We are in probation. We're in probation for our eternal roles. Uh, don't know about you, I don't think I'm going to be playing a harp for the rest of eternity. Sitting on a cloud. Do you think that God has the rest of eternity planning you sitting on a cloud playing a harp? I'm sorry. God's got some serious, God's got some serious business organised for us. And if we now are creative beings and God has put in our hearts the desire to work and to produce, imagine what he has for us up there for the rest of eternity. So God's not going to keep us bored in heaven. God's going to keep us very, very active. But what you do, what you and I will do in heaven, guess what? will be determined by what we do here. This is our proving ground. This is our probationary period. And what position we hold up there will be determined by how we answer the call here. Let me make it clearer for you. Turn to Luke chapter 12 with me. Luke chapter 12, verse 31 is a very familiar verse, which is often a comfort to me when things aren't going too right. And it should be a comfort for you as well. Luke 12, 31 says, But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. He's saying that, you know something, just keep your eyes focused on heaven. If you're worried about jobs, and if you're worried about relationships, and you're worried about things not going right on the earth, he says, you know something, just seek the, the kingdom of God first. All these things... God will give them to you. He knows that you need them anyway. Okay? And verse 32 it says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And if you focus your life 
on building your treasure in heaven so that one day when you're up there, God's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Look at the treasure you bought here. And you're going to say, God, you know, they're all yours. You, you actually, you were the one who actually gave them all to me. And I don't deserve any of them. But wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to say, God, look at all this. Look at what you did through me. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, are you building a treasure here on earth or are we building a treasure in heaven? Only you can answer that question. Is your mind and your heart focused so heavily on this world that's corrupting and will one day be destroyed by fire? Or is your heart really in heaven where your saviour is and where you long to be? Do you really love him? Yeah, Jesus... Jesus says to the um, one of the churches, which one was it? You've, lost, you've left your first love. Was it Laodicean? The first love. He says, you've left your first love. Who's the first love? Who's our first love? It's him. He's our first love. And if, we've, if we leave our first love, what do we have? We have absolutely nothing in this world. We have nothing. It's like so, someone who's, who's won an amazing amount of money and then says, oh, I'll forget about that money. I'm just going to try and live in the streets. We have a, a, a treasure more important than anything else. He's our first love. Never leave him. If you have a relationship with him, you have everything. Everything you need. Go to, go to chapter 19 in Luke for a moment. Just turn, turn forward a, a few chapters. Jesus gives a parable about a, uh, a king who gave a certain amount of money to his servants. I'll just read the end of it because we won't have enough time. But it says in verse 16 of chapter 19, it says, Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. So he makes ten dollars out of one dollar. Right? And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he's saying, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. Do you see what the, the challenge is for us? God has given you a certain amount. He's... He's in, in your life, he has put certain abilities. We call them gifts, spiritual gifts. And he will lay out a certain number of things in front of your path during your lifetime. Because he knows exactly how long you're going to live, right? And he wants you to use those gifts to glorify him. And in the end, you're going to stand before God and you're either going to say, Lord, your pound, what you put into my life, this is what it's gained you. And he's either going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Or is something else you might say, which is not what you really want to be hearing. Every day that passes, let me remind you, is gone. Gone. You don't get it back. And your life will go faster for those of you who are older. Does, does time travel faster when you get older or does it, does it travel at the same yes. speed? Yes. It travels faster, does it? Yes. What is going on with that? <laughs> Last week I had a full head of hair. I can't work it out. <laughs> the older you get, 
the faster time goes. And when you have children, it seems like it seems like it multiplies faster and faster. So, please remember that every day that is is gone is lost in eternity. You can never ever get it back. Make the most of every day for God. Make the most. Don't squander it. Don't throw it away. Don't get caught up in things you shouldn't be doing because the devil will have you try to get stuck in sins and get stuck in, in things that distract you from God and get, and get you tempted back in this world. He's going to make you say, oh, it's so important what's out there. You can't miss out on it because if you miss out on it, you're not going to be as happy as you, you really could be. Garbage. You could have zero in your pocket. You could have nothing in this world. If you have Christ, you have it all. So don't listen to his lies. We have a limited number of days to achieve what God wants us to achieve, which are the eternal works that he has prepared, which glorify him, which one day we can lay down at the feet of our Saviour and say, this is all yours. There'll be plenty of tears in heaven. There'll be plenty of tears of joy, but I assume there'll be plenty of tears of sadness and regret. The good thing is that God will wipe away all of our tears. There'll be plenty of us who say, how did I squander that opportunity? How did I miss out on that? Why was I so blind to what you were trying to teach me? The good thing is the Bible says he'll wipe away all those tears and maybe the regret won't last too long. But why have regret when you're walking into an eternity? That's that's a long time, sorry. That's a long time to be to be actually reaping the reward of what you've done over here. That's a long, long time. We want to be not wasting any time over here. So verse 11 says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. There are three things we have to contend with in this world. One is the devil, one is the world, and one is our own flesh. And those three work together. The devil uses the world to entice our flesh, which is continually drawn to the world, because it, unfortunately, can't come along for the ride when we go to heaven. It's stuck here and it's drawn here and it is naturally a member of this world. So it wants to continually be part of it. So it continues to try to drag us into or back into the world. And our soul is that battlefield. We are made up of a body, a soul and a spirit. Our spirits were dead. The Bible says when the, when the Holy Spirit came along and we accepted Christ as our saviour, the spirit plugged us back in to God's unbelievable source of power and communication. We became alive again. We began to understand again. All of a sudden our eyes opened again and we saw what was happening in this world and to ourselves. But the devil will will always try to tempt us and, and guide us back away from that. We live in a war zone. And fleshly lusts are precisely that, fleshly. They come from the flesh and not from our spirit. They seek to war against our souls and have dominion over our lives. The very things that held us in bondage before we were born again and kept us blinded from the goodness of God are still lurking around. They're still there. So there's a challenge that we have. 
there is a challenge because we need to keep our eyes open and our ears open to what the devil is doing because he will always try to undermine what God is doing in our lives. But we should always, always be mindful that within ourselves there is this inherent weakness that battles against our own souls. And how do we keep an eye on what's going on? Well, we keep an eye through the word of God because we live in a very, very dark world and the flesh wants to go back into that darkness because it hates being exposed. But the Bible says that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When the scriptures say that, the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, it implies we live in darkness. It implies the world is dark. And it's the word of God that lights, that gives us enough light so we don't stumble and fall. Okay? It not only is a light to, to our feet or a lamp to our feet it, it, so you don't step in any holes along the way, it lights the path ahead of us so we know the direction that we're going as well. The word of God brings light into this world. And that light was first delivered to us in the form of a gospel, which is the truth of God. We've been called out of, his, of darkness into his glorious light. That's why 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen generation. At the end of that passage, he says, Who, uh, who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? The gospel is a calling to those who are in darkness to come into the light of God, to know the truth, to live the truth, which sets a person free. And for those who have indeed heard the call or heeded the call and have believed in the truth of God, they are no longer in darkness. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 with me. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. It says, They're giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet. That's not meat, Anthony. That's that's it's meat as in fit, all right? I do understand it. Yeah, thank you. Um, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now that is an awesome couple of verses there. I could preach another whole series on just those two verses, but God has made us meet, which means fit. For or to be called the saints of light, the set apart ones, the special ones of God, and has delivered us, which means He's rescued us, He saved us from the power of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We now exist, we now exist as citizens of that kingdom, living in the light, believers of the word, which is the truth of God. And we need always to be mindful that we are members of that kingdom. We need to always be reminded that, like Moses, who went up on a mountain and spent 40 days of God, and when he came down, they were scared of him. Did you know that? The guy glowed. So he's there with God for 40 days, and he comes down, and they go, what's going on here? Like, the guy was glowing. His face was glowing. So they, they made him wear a, a thing over his face, like a burqa, I think it was. <laughs> no? A male burqa. No, no. <laughs> they made him wear a veil over his face, because they were so scared of him. Well, guys, let me tell you something. You know, when we spend time with God and we're bathed in the light of heaven, okay, and we've absorbed the word of God and we go out there, 
Don't expect them to be loving you and welcoming you. Expect them to be afraid of you. Because sometimes what we bring is scary to them. They're not used to it. If you're glowing in front of them, it exposes who they are. So there's a few ways they can actually deal with that. One is to put that wall up and run away. The other one is to actually attack you because you're exposing their own lives. So don't ever worry about that. Live in the light. Glow as much as you possibly can. <laughs> Glow. But never forget that our own flesh wars against us. It literally and naturally wants us to go back to the darkness. And how should living daily in the light of God cause us to live in this world? Look at verse 12. It says, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now that's an interesting verse. Having an honest conversation means that we live rightly in front of them. Conversation doesn't just mean speech. Conversation means the things that we do in front of them. Your lifestyle is honest, which means it's truthful in every possible way. And that means living the truth of God in front of them. It means that the truth that saved us should be the truth that motivates us, that guides us, and that causes us to live in a particular way. Because being saved is not the end of the story, it's the beginning for us. He wants us to grow. God did not save us to leave us as we were before. God saved us to change us and conform us to the image of his son. And that's what we should be striving for each and every day of our lives. Why? Because in many cases, people will see the life that we have and the spirit will use us to convict them of their sin. You can be used by God without even doing anything. Simply by living that way. The spirit will convict them of their sin. Or they will also be watching us with a critical eye because they may be considering the message that we've delivered and they're looking for, guess what, hypocrisy. Or we said, oh, I'm a citizen of heaven. I've been saved by Christ. I've been redeemed. I've been cleansed you know, of all my sin. And you go and do something that's the exact opposite of what you just said in front of them, which gives them excuse to say, that is not true, what you're saying. So we've been called to live with honesty and truthfulness in front of them. Are we perfect? No, we're not. But we shouldn't continue to offer excuse after excuse and reason after reason why we don't. The Bible simply tells us that God has given us everything we need to live godly lives now. They're watching us. So live a consistently godly life. Do it. If you haven't done it, do it from today. Don't give yourself any excuses. There are plenty of excuses going around. Everyone gives excuses. Don't be one of those ones. Don't give yourself an excuse not to live a godly life. You have everything you need. And maybe the truth that you speak to them, maybe the, 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 the words that you speak will be reinforced by the life that you live and not say, actually, I want what he's got. I want that citizenship. I can actually see what he's talking about. And I'd rather be a citizen of heaven than a citizen of this place. It says, Whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, people driven 
by their flesh. And the devil who seeks to keep them in darkness it makes people speak out against us as evildoers. Their own flesh will try to resist the message that we give to them. So what they do, remember I said to you, they will attack or they'll run. And this is become, becoming more and more prevalent in our society and the world in general. The world we live in is becoming more and more anti-Christian and more and more anti-the truth with every passing week, almost. Christians are seen as, I'm sorry, but you are a pack of troublemakers. A pack of troublemakers. You're not conforming. You're not conforming to the things of this world. Why are you not denouncing God? You should be godless like everyone else. You should, be, you should be atheistic like everyone's trying to push. You should believe in secularism. Why are you rejecting evolution? What is it with you on science? You can't accept science? What are all the wonderful philosophies that are in the world? Why aren't you accepting those? And just as they have sought to get rid of God as, as a source of truth and, and have convinced themselves that their own truth is better than God's, they wonder why you don't follow suit. So here we are, resisting the philosophies of the world, the sciences of the world, all the wonderful things the world has to offer, and we're saying, you know something, sorry, I won't have any more of that because I'm actually, I belong to somewhere else. And they say, what are you talking about? I don't belong here. Don't be shocked. What's happening today, and we might look at this and say, oh, what a terrible situation we're in. You know, they, they, they're doing all these things that are against Christians now. And you know something? Look at what Peter said 2,000 years ago. They speak against you as evildoers. We haven't reached that point yet where they're lopping off heads, burning us at the stake, where they're feeding us to lions, where they're doing all these things. They haven't reached, we haven't reached that point yet. And if they do, praise God. Because we're not worthy of this world. Well, this, that's right. And this world, is not, this world is not worthy of us. Are you worthy of this world? Or is this world worthy of you? It's not. Peter has something in mind, and it's not our protection, it's not our comfort. It's not that we can outsmart them by how, how intelligent our arguments actually are or we can outdo them or outlast them. It's simply that we can live the way God wants us to live, that we might glorify him. It's a very simple proposition. And it's all, when it's all said and done and they've accused us, they've rejected us, and in the end it says that by, the, by our good works that they, that, that they shall behold, they're going to glorify God in the day of visitation. Isn't that strange? They're going to one day accuse us and call us all types of nasty names and things. But it says on the day of visitation, on the day that Christ returns, it says they're going to glorify God. Did you know what that means? It means they're going to testify and say, God, you were right. You were right. What they were telling us was true, which means it glorifies God because they're going to have to admit that they were wrong. He was right. And the good works that we did were a testament to them that God was true, that God is good, that he's loving, that he's patient, 
that he's the one full of grace and mercy. We are surrounded by witnesses in this world. We are surrounded by witnesses who are watching us run a race with our eyes on the author of our faith. Keep your eyes on the author of our faith. Don't be distracted. We've got a race to run. And Paul says that everyone who runs in a race runs to win. Are you running to win today? Please, don't sit on the sidelines anymore. If you've, if you've been sitting too long, don't sit. Run with all of your might. Because the time is short. And God deserves every ounce of my life now, not tomorrow. We're surrounded by witnesses. And God will be glorified one way or the other. Even if they've rejected him and they say, yes, you were right, and he casts them into hell, God actually is glorified one way and the other. He's glorified by sending people to hell because they have rejected the message, they've rejected the truth, and the Bible says he's glorified in us who have received the actual truth and salvation. Turn to Isaiah chapter 45 as I, as I close in this, with this particular thought. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21 to 23. I'm going to read two other brief brief passages before we close because I want you to understand something very, very important. Now look at what Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus was born. Okay, It says in verse chapter 45, verse 21, Tell ye, And bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? And who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and a saviour. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Now turn to Romans chapter 14 with me. God will be glorified either way. Every knee will bow to him one day. Every tongue will swear because he is the only God and a just saviour. Romans chapter 14 verse 11 and 12 tells us, For it is written, and Paul quotes this, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to who? To me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now turn to Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 with me. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow 
of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you get that? He's quoted the same passage, but now he's saying, at the name of Jesus, every, every knee will bow. They will bow to him and they'll confess that he is Lord. What's it saying? It's saying that Jesus is the same God who made that, that prophecy in Isaiah. It's the same God that we are going to, everyone is going to bow the knee to. Everyone. If you have any reservation or doubt that Jesus is God in the flesh, leave it behind. Don't ever doubt it. He is the everlasting one. He is the saviour of the world. And God says he alone is saviour in the Old Testament. And Jesus says he is the saviour. There is no God beside me, a just God and a saviour. There is none beside me. And know this, that every knee will bow. Every knee. And it says, and just to make it more clearer for you, every knee in heaven, every knee on the earth, and every knee under the earth, which is... The ones, the ones that rejected him, the ones that rebelled against him, every knee will bow. The question is, when will you bow the knee? You can either bow the knee now, which many of us have done. If you bow the knee now, he becomes your Lord and Saviour. But if you bow the knee after, he won't be your Saviour. But you'll still recognise him as Lord. So my challenge to you today is bow the knee to Jesus today. Recognise him as your king. Recognise that you are a citizen of his kingdom today. If you're saved, live like a citizen of his kingdom. As an ambassador to this world, understand that the time we have is short. Don't be confused. Don't be um, tricked by Satan. And if you're not saved today, if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus as your only God and Saviour, then today is the day to do it. Renounce everything else that you know and accept the call of heaven that you might be saved. God bless you. Thank you.